Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the Brooklyn Bunker. Folks, if you're listening to this, we have made it. We've made it towards the end of another hellscape week in these United States of disaster, right? What are some of the highlights of this week that I actually want to bring up, and particularly news that broke yesterday with regard to the 1-6 House Select Committee deciding to issue subpoenas for um, five Republicans, including uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, but I want to read to you this piece uh, just briefly that outlines who the committee is uh, subpoenaing. And why, right? And what is getting me about how the media is talking about this push by the 1-6 committee is the fact that they keep trying to make it parallel to the ways in which the Republicans had set up their investigation and their illegitimate investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. These two things are not the fucking same. Republicans investigation into Benghazi, Republicans investigation into the email gate, all of that was about politics, about smudslinging, about smears and about elections. It had nothing to do with the fact that Hillary Clinton's emails or the four people who sadly died in Benghazi had anything to do with our life here in America, our national security, our well-being. It it had everything to do with the Republicans' agenda to take down Hillary Clinton, who they knew was going to be the 2016 nominee for the Democratic Party. And so when the media frames these conversations up as if these two things, you know, are equal, 
in merit, they're not. What the 1-6 House Committee is doing is trying to, with their over 1,000 interviews and investigations, with their um, desire now for the first of the public hearings to be held beginning uh, in June, June 9th, I believe is the first scheduled date um, for the committee hearing on prime time. And the point being is that while the physical coup, while the physical insurrection ended on January 6th, the slow moving coup, which is not actually moving that fucking slow, continues. And it continues because we have a Department of Justice that is ineffectual, that is inept, uh, and that refuses to use the teeth given to them by virtue of you know, the power and authority that the Department of Justice has, which is to bring federal criminal charges against those that break the fucking law. I don't know how much more information is required and or necessary in order to activate the Department of Justice, which seems to be in somebody's a coma. But, you know, part of these subpoenas that the one six house commission puts out, the only way that they are actually enforced is if you have an activated department of justice. If you remember five months ago, the one six committee referred Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former, uh, fucking treasonous hotline chief of staff to the Department of Justice for criminal charges for not showing up for a subpoena. Well, it's been five months. What has the Department of Justice done to move forward on that request by the 1-6 committee? Nothing. So when you look at Republicans' consistent desire to place obstacle and obstacle in front of, you know, in front of them to create some type of room between the criminal ongoings of Trump administration and those that help to aid and abet as as, as accomplices on one six. If you don't have a department of justice that is actually going to follow through on following up on criminal charges, then what the fuck is the point of the committee? Right? So Nonetheless, let me get to who they have targeted for subpoenas and why. So this is according to CNN. Subpoenas to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and four other Republican lawmakers who have rejected the panel's request to voluntarily cooperate. Now, let's be clear that each and every person has been asked voluntarily to offer what it is that they know. Now, you would believe that as a member of this legislative body that you would see as a part of the duty and oath that you took to our constitution and to the well-being of all American citizens, that you would do your duty. But you see, Republicans believe that they are above the law and, and our fucking lackluster Department of Justice allows them to function in that way without any fear of prosecution, any fear that they would have to defend themselves in a court of law. Because we continue, right, as a Democratic establishment, continues to believe that there are, quote unquote, good Republicans that are still around. And I'm watching these people on the news as they're being asked, well, what happens when they decide not to abide by the subpoena? 
we're going to take this one step at a time is what I hear from Democrats. You're going to take this one step at a time. We're fucking running out of time. You got six months until midterms. You got another couple of weeks until the primetime hearings. And I hope that the primetime one six committee hearings look a hell of a lot better than the fucking Mueller hearings did. Um, I hope that they learned a lesson there. I doubt it. But when you see that this party does not abide by the rule of law, your response can't be, we'll just see what happens. It, it should be that we will then begin to put pressure on our department of justice to do its job and duty plain and simple. And if not, then begin to put pressure on the Biden administration to appoint a fucking attorney general that is worth their goddamn salt. I digress. In addition to McCarthy, the Democratic-led panel is subpoenaing Republicans, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Lawmakers on the panel have been weighing whether or not to subpoena their Republican colleagues for months, wrestling with whether they had the constitutional right to do so and debating if they wanted to set such a precedent. And here's the thing that I have to say about that sentence. If they have the desire to wanting to set such a precedent. When you know that you are right, you need to have the power to stand in your fucking convictions, right? And this is where Democrats lose me all the goddamn time is that they function as a way that is bracing themselves for the Republicans reactions, as opposed to standing in their truth. Republicans didn't have shit to stand on with email gate. They didn't have shit to stand on with Benghazi, but there was no real pushback to their inquisitions. The reality is, is that you have the truth and the American public on your side. So we don't need to be fearful of what kind of fucking precedent is being, is being laid down because you know that Republicans, regardless of what it is that you decide to tiptoe around or actually enforce, they're coming for you regardless. So if you know that, then there's no need to be fearful. Just be fucking prepared. I'll go on. Uh, so this is what is said by uh, the chairman of the panel, uh, Representative Benny Thompson from Mississippi. Quote, the select committee has learned that several of our colleagues have information relevant to our investigation into the attack on January 6th and the events leading up to it. Before we hold our hearings next month, we wish to provide members the opportunity to discuss these matters with the committee voluntarily. Regrettably, he goes on to say, the individuals receiving subpoenas today have refused and were forced to take that we are forced to take this step to help ensure the committee uncovers facts concerning January 6. And here's what we know to be true and what CNN breaks down. This is uh, around Kevin McCarthy. In its initial letter to McCarthy in January, the panel made clear it wanted to question him about his communications, which have now been made widely known with the January 6th tapes with former President Donald Trump, White House staff, and others in the week of January 6th, particularly regarding President Trump's state of mind at the time. 
What we have learned, dear friends, from the tapes that we have now all heard is that Kevin McCarthy believed that Donald Trump committed a fucking crime, believed that he needed to resign, said, in fact, that he was going to ask him to do so, and then did it about face. Now, what the question that I'm assuming that the 1-6 Commission, among many, have for Kevin McCarthy is, what made you change your mind from asking Donald Trump to resign in recognition that he was to blame for the insurrection that we all witnessed unfold with our own eyes on January 6th? And then a couple of days later, you fly down to Mar-a-Lago, kiss the ring, and then all is well. These are legitimate questions, right? So. According to CNN, since the panel's letter to McCarthy, new audio, which I just said, revealed that the, in the days following the insurrection, the minority leader had considered asking Trump to resign. The panel first reached out to, uh, to Jordan, one of Trump's staunchest allies on Capitol Hill, in December to learn more about his communications. Here we have Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, Jordan and Trump, according to CNN, spoke on the phone in the morning of January 6th while Trump was in the White House residence. White House call records in the panel's possession, first reported by CNN, showed. Since Jordan first acknowledged that he spoke to Trump on phone that day, the Ohio Republican and Trump loyalist has waived off questions about it or has been inconsistent in his answers. Now, we know that Jim Jordan flops back and forth more than a flip-flop or anyone working at IHOP. The reality here, though, is that these people have been caught. The House Commission has thousand, a thousand other interviews that have led them to the doorstep of these people that they know by virtue of records that have already been subpoenaed, tapes that have already been leaked, and interviews that have already been had that these people have are mixed up in wrongdoing. The question is whether or not that wrongdoing is actually criminal. And then my question is, once we discover that in fact it was criminal in nature, and to quote the political, this was a coup in search of a law to justify it, once we find that out, do we have an actual Department of Justice that is going to seek accountability and responsibility looking at the architects of this coup? Because right now, once again, I will tell you that I do not think that that is the case. And so if we then have all of this information that is gathered by the 1-6 House Commission, we then get to a place after all of these public hearings that the public is now outraged. And then you have a fucking jellyfish of a attorney general that is not going to take any type of action. How do you think that this sets up Democrats for the midterms? Because I'll tell you, it don't fucking set them up well. Republicans are literally offering up everything to Democrats on a silver platter. If in fact, Democrats were going to decide to go on the offense instead of operating from a place of defense or fear. Republicans are going to do what Republicans do. When you take logic off the table and you say their reaction is always going to be out of range, right, of what it needs to be to this moment, then you can proceed the way you're going to move anyway. If you know the people around you are going to move bad, then it's either you're going to follow the crowd or you're going to stand in your truth. This is the decision that Democrats have to make. And frankly, it's the decision that our president needs to make because we are at a pivotal moment in this country where we are losing rights, left and right. 
with no opposition coming down from Democrats and no opposition coming from the Department of Justice, all we keep hearing is rhetoric about institutionalism and preserving an institution. And I'm saying you're preserving the institution at the sake of our democracy. And I don't see how that actually goes together. So we will see, dear friends, um, as we inch closer to the first uh, day of this uh, primetime hearings on, on June 9th, what it is that this Department of Justice is going to do, whether or not these lawmakers are going to uphold their oath, right, or do what they have been doing. My assumption, they're going to keep doing what they've been doing. But come to find out, cable news is reporting that Republicans have retained lawyers. So that to me already states that you done done some shit and you want to make sure that you can be as Teflon as possible and the shit just bounces off of you. And what I'm saying is that if the Department of Justice is not paying attention to this and they get away with outright criming, then our democracy, regardless of whether or not we win midterms, which is unlikely, or the 2024 election, our democracy is done. Coming up next, friends, my conversation with Jennifer Thompson, who is the executive director of the New Jersey National Alliance of Social Workers, who I'm going to be in conversation with about how one begins to prepare for protests these days. What used to be done 10 years ago, 15 years ago, is now no longer the norm. What does safety look like in our rising climate of violence? Get a behind-the-scenes look at Comedy Central's The Daily Show on Beyond the Scenes, an original podcast from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Every week, host Roy Wood Jr. goes deeper with the notable guests and experts from the Emmy Award-winning series. Together, they use comedy to tackle current topics from gentrification to gun laws and take a closer look at how and why these topics matter. Listen to Beyond the Scenes from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Hey, I'm David Plotz of Slate's Political Gab Fest. As another election season accelerates, it can be tricky to sort through all the noise in the news. Each week on the Gab Fest, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and I decipher the headlines, break down the races, and tell you what issues really matter. We do not always agree. We definitely do not always agree. But we always deliver thoughtful debate, and we always have a good time. So subscribe to Slate's Political Gab Fest. New episodes every Thursday. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to OKF for the very first time, Jennifer Thompson, who is the executive director of the New Jersey National Association of Social Workers. And, you know, Jennifer, we're living in such a, I don't even know what the word is. Like I've been using the word precarious, but that just doesn't seem to have the right amount of oomph uh, when talking about what we are up against. But our conversation today is with regard to how folks protest, um, what we need to be thinking about as we are headed into mass protests. Like since the leaked uh, decision, draft decision that I use in quotation marks from the Supreme Court has come down, there have been spontaneous protests, um, some in front of the judges' own homes, some in front of uh, senators' homes, uh, and then some that we have always seen, right, which is marches on the Supreme Court or in and around Washington, D.C., or in your local areas. 
Tell us how protesting has changed, uh, you know, over the past, you know, decade even. Yeah, we are certainly in a moment, uh, again, of mass protests and crisis. And I'm not sure we ever moved from it two years ago. So right, uh, we just continue to march and protest, but it has changed quite a bit in, in my estimation. And you know, since when I started protesting 20 years ago, um, I think when gone are the days of just showing up somewhere and you know, marching for rights or protesting something, I think people are need to be much more prepared to organize methodically, know their rights, know the laws, and be prepared because what we're seeing is protests being met with police action and brutality and mm-hmm. even our citizens bearing arms and taking the law into their own hands. So we must be more methodical. We must be more prepared. We must know what to do in these situations so that we can not only protest civilly, so that we can engage in in our rights, but also protect ourselves. Because I think the least, the last thing we want to see happen is while we're out fighting for, you know, rights and to, you know, affect change that people's lives are lost in the process of that. Um, So it's, you know, we can't just show up anymore. You can show up, but show up prepared, show up with your rights in hand, know what you're doing, know where you're showing up to, uh, and, and be smart about it. You know, I, I, I'm so glad that you brought up, you know, the protests during the summer of 2020, right, that were largely focused around uh, the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, during that time, uh, following the protests that happened in front of the White House at Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., where Donald Trump decided, along with uh, General Milley, to clear out, and I again use quotations, to clear out peaceful protests, which I've, I live in New York now, but have lived in Washington, D.C. for nearly 20 years. And, you know, protests in front of the White House, regardless of who is in office, is the norm, right? It, it, is, it is the norm, you think, to live in a democracy where people are protesting a number of things. Um, to watch then uh, twice impeach former President Donald Trump clear out with tear gas and police on horseback, um, the threats of military action to learn now that he was saying things like, just shoot them in the leg, just shoot them, right? How do people that you engage with through your association, how do they feel? about protesting. Like it used to be again a thing that we grabbed our, you know, witty signs and headed out with like-minded people, never once really thinking about how to quote unquote keep ourselves safe. Because protesting is covered by our constitution, it's the right to assemble. So what are people feeling about this drastic change, Jennifer, in such a short period of time. You know, I think that's probably the thing that makes me the most proud and the most hopeful is that I I could certainly understand if people would see now protesting and gathering and marching as something that was risky and scary and pulling back from it. Mm-hmm. I, that's completely understandable. But what gives me goosebumps and makes me so hopeful is that 
what people are saying is that we will rise to the occasion. You can show up in these awful spaces and you can threaten us, but that will not deter us. The will, the determination, and the rise of the people to protect what is good and to fight for our basic human rights and the dignity of all people, we're still going to do it. We're still going to show up in these moments. We are going to be smarter about it. We are going to be more prepared. We are going to organize on the back end. But I think the feeling is, checkmate, you thought that this was going to deter us, but it has only made us stronger and smarter. And that gives me so much hope. I mean, it gives me, you know, when I see people, you know, in, in small towns and in large cities gathering and having their voices be heard to me, it's when I feel my most patriotic, right? Um, it is when I see people exercising their right and responsibility to assemble, to gather, um, to create, uh, a, a mass sense of, of response to the direction that our country is headed in. At the same time, though, I think about the opposition that we're up against, and I worry for people's safety. Um, I worry nowadays, you know, when you're hearing, and and this, again, was just uh, a a couple of weeks ago, I guess over a week ago at this point, people are getting ready to gather in front of the Supreme Court, and the chatter on right-wing platforms had gone through the roof in terms of exercising violence, right? Telling their people to show up and to gather uh, and to cause chaos, right? And to cause undue harm. I think that, you know, do you feel of all the issues that you all, you know, have yourselves involved in as it pertains to protesting, do you feel like, what is the, that, that there is a sense of more violence around Ish, the issue of abortion than any other issue? I don't think so. Uh, it has been my sense that there was more of a concern of violence and the upheaval after the murder of George Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's because it was more black and brown people rallying and protesting, yep. right? It is in a lot of ways, safer for a bunch of white women who are angry about reproductive rights to gather. And so I don't think Mm, mm. that we have seen it, the chatter. I think perhaps if there is chatter about more harmful activities from the right wing and a call to violence, I don't know that it's the issue, but rather the moment in time, because they've been Mm. so emboldened by the insurrection. They've already seen what they can do. So now we've elevated that temperature in a different way. I don't think it's the issue. I feel like it's the moment. And um, I think that says a lot about where we are as a country and really the lasting impact of January 6th. What do you think, you know, honestly, about this moment, about what you have seen and understood since the January 6th insurrection? and I guess the the sentiment from people that you're around on one hand, you know, we keep hearing things like, let's just move past, turn the page. It's not a big deal. And then for others, it is literally the sanctity and the and the survival of our democracy hangs on the ability to have accountability, the ability to hear from the masses. So what what are your feelings about how we have shifted and how the climate has shifted? 
since January 6, 2021? Oh, I feel as if the temperature has been rising, rising, rising over the last several years, and certainly throughout the Trump administration. Um, it's, it is not something that we should move past. It is January 6th was a, uh, and continues to be a pivotal moment in our nation's history to see people storming our Capitol and to see our now elected officials, not holding those individuals accountable in any way, shape or form. That is not something we should move past. It is not something that we should take lightly. And I think that rhetoric is really harmful, right? Because if we can tolerate this, we'll tolerate the next slight escalation. Right. It's just incremental turning up of the volume and the harmful rhetoric and the dismantling of our rights and our sense of security that leads us to become a nation that's unsafe for all. And I don't think people really understand mm how this is systemic, how this is intentional, and what they're building upon in little ways every day that ultimately put us at risk. You know, you brought up the the, the difference in terms of who was protesting, right? Um, during the uprisings, it was more black and brown people because essentially, you know, it's our lives and the lives of those in our community that are at stake. With abortion, it has largely been couched as a white woman's issue, right? For better or for worse. I started my career uh, with the National Organization for Women, um, which at that time was not wholly welcome, welcoming to queer people, to LGBTQ people, um, was not wholly welcoming to black and brown uh, women and the issues and the intersectional issues that we have to deal with in terms of race and gender and sexual uh, orientation and gender identity. So I, I guess it's, what do you see as the opportunity here when it is white women that are gathering and white women, frankly, you know, against my own desire are the only people that are really listened to in, you know, in the media. What, what's, what do you think is the role and the responsibility with this moment in this movement with this group of women? It is deeply problematic that white women are the only ones listened to, if we're listened to at all. Generally speaking, it would yeah. be a white woman. And I think that our responsibility, my responsibility is profound. We need to listen to the black and brown women who have been doing this work for so much longer and know how to do it. You know, I, I, a couple of things really have come to mind recently when there was this mm -hmm. uh, call for a, a strike on Mother's Day. We're all going to strike. We're not going to do anything. That's going to show them. I think that's an interesting concept, right? But well executed, it must be. And it doesn't take into account the privilege that comes with that. And that those social media posts, that rhetoric was started by white women. And I just you have to take a step back and say, that's not possible for all women. That is not the best way yep. to organize. That is, we need to take a seat here and not call for advocacy efforts that leave 50% of the female population out and not able to participate. So we really mm -hmm. need to, we really need to rely on the people who have been doing this. The women who know how to organize, black and brown women know how to organize much better than white women. You know about creating the foundation about creating that infrastructure, 
things that we have not been doing, but other communities have been doing for so much longer than it. It's time for us to take a seat, listen and follow and lend our voices where we can. I, I think there's also was sort of a moment yesterday and I was at a press conference, um, New Jersey's governor is doing some really phenomenal things about creating protections around abortion access funds to make mm-hmm. sure that women are here and unequivocally said that, you know, we are not going to participate in helping any other states prosecute women or healthcare providers. Um, and there were legislators who spoke up and to champion this legislation and certainly we need their voice. But I also think this is a moment where men need to sit down and say, I understand my role is not to speak on this issue any longer. I am going to give my time and my space to elevate the voices that need to be elevated. And I think that's the only way that we're going to win this battle. You know, it it just is. You know, it's so interesting because on one hand, you know, I want, you know, when we're talking about heterosexual relationships and the role that men have in terms of pregnancy and, and I'm saying, you know, I actually want men straight men to speak out in advocacy of the fact that like, this is actually an economic issue. Like to me, I've always believed that the way that the abortion issue has been presented. um, I agree with the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's just like, yeah, the merits of this case were not actually argued in the right way, that this was more so about equity than it was about privacy, right? It's about, you can't have I mean, I guess we can because we're about to, but you in a true democracy, you can't have one set of laws that is only uh, executed towards one group of people and not the other. And so for me, it's like the role of straight men here is to be able to speak out and talk about how abortion has actually allowed their lives to be able to function on the same path, how like abortion allows for there to be, you know, uh, a lack of disruption. And the the economic gains that you can have as a hetero couple that like requires both of us to be in the workforce working and then be able, being able to provide for childcare and do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, is, is there a space for men not to just yield the floor, but to be able to speak with a perspective that I think is missing from the larger conversation? Yes. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. If they were adding to the conversation in a different way, I don't know that I've heard that conversation. I think that's probably the disheartening piece, right? When when we hear men speak about this issue, they talk about mm-hmm. a women's right to choose and their body and sort yep. of standing up and affirming the things that we're saying, but they're also not talking about it from their perspective. And that that is a really important piece of the conversation. I just haven't heard it. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. like I haven't either, but I'm I'm always thinking about why, you know, um, because I do think that I do think that straight men have a role here and should have a voice because it it bothers me that even at all of these rallies and protests, that a majority of those that are participating are women, and I'm just like, you know, outside of being in an LGBTQ relationship, having fertility, like this is also a men's issue. So I'm like, so where is, you know, where are you? You know, and the only men that we hear from are those that are the opposition that are saying, like, I'm bringing you back into the 1800s. Um, you know, so I mean, so again, like you when you do hear from men, it's always in the negative or it's couched in a woman's right to choose not about their experience. And I think that that could be 
the next iteration of how we fight this this particular um at this particular moment. Last question yep. for you um with regard to how people collect themselves and prepare um to attend protests these days because I just want you to be as clear as possible. Give us the three to five things. If I am, you know, wanting to attend a protest in my town or travel to a different place to go and do that, what is it that folks should know or should find out before they go? Great question. There are so many things that you should know and should do. First, make sure that you know the local laws and your state laws regarding, you know, assembly and is this assembly going to be on private property and know where you're going to be, right? Because there's a freedom of speech is protected in public spaces, but not private spaces. And if you encroach upon that, you really need to know what's at risk for you. Second thing you need to know is, you know, what you're going to bring, right? Coming to an organized demonstration and a protest, you need to be prepared. You need to make sure that you have a phone, that it's charged. You need to know that you should have lawyers' numbers written on you in case you've lost your belongings, right? Who are you going to call? You've got those numbers written in Sharpie, so they're not going to come off of you in any Smudge, come off, <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. Right? You should definitely bring, you know, cash. You should bring your phone. You should bring clothing that don't, doesn't trap chemicals, face masks. And you need to make sure that you have friends who know where you are, that they know where you're going, mm -hmm. that they know sort of when you're going to be checking in. And that's really important. And I think we learned that during the insurrection, right? There was a woman who showed up to protest and went missing and no one knew where she was. And come to find out she was deceased. She had been trampled in the insurrection, but no one was really sure where she was for a very long time. So have a plan, make sure that people know where you're at, make sure that you can check in with them and that people, you know, know where you're going to be and that you're you're safe after you've attended. You know, also making sure that you know what your rights are if you're being questioned. In your state, are you required to produce your driver's license if asked for it? If you do have to produce it, I think you should think about whether you take that with you, right? That could keep you detained longer in some states mm -hmm. if you have identification mm -hmm. on you. You need to know, you know, what questions you can and cannot answer, what you should answer without an attorney present. Everything is state specific, which is unfortunate. Right. But there are things yeah, that you can do, course. very simple Google to make sure you know where you're going, who you're going with, what your rights are, a number of an attorney or your local, you know, ACLU if you must. Somewhere where you can call for legal help if you find yourself in a predicament. But most of all, show up and be prepared and be safe with your own personhood. Don't take weapons, don't take anything that could be construed as a weapon. Um, and really be mindful. You know, the other thing that I like to tell people is make sure that you have a camera. If your cam, if you do not have a camera on your phone, that's hard to believe that some people still have phones of that nature. <laughs> I'm like, who is that person? <laughs> My mother. Um, but take a camera with you. And if you see something or you experience something, you need to document it. And you need to document it with photo evidence and write it down if you can. Take a note in your phone. I saw this. This is who it was. If it was an experience with an officer of the law or anybody in authority, get their name, get their badge number, document as much as you can. And the other thing I would say to people is if you don't want to protest and you want to participate and be helpful in any way, understand what you can do as a silent observer in these situations. 
Those are critically important roles. People there bearing witness to what's happening and documenting if there's any harm being done. And I think as we see the rise in temperature of, you know, police intervention and force yep. and brutality at protests, we need silent observers who are documenting and they can step in with factual evidence of what's happened. So there are different ways for you to protest and get involved. I think ultimately we need to be doing all we can in these moments, not just on the abortion issue, but we still need to be marching for mm-hmm. equity and inclusion and against police mm-hmm. brutality. We've got a lot of things to do. So pick a day. There's something to march on, <laughs> but show up <laughs> and be prepared. 100%. Jennifer Thompson, thank you so much for making the time to join Woke AF. And thank you for laying out, you know, how protests have changed and that, you know, our safety and how we keep ourselves safe evolves with what we are seeing presented at those that are still trying to gather peacefully. And so I I think that it's critical, uh, the, the steps that you outlined and, um, really appreciate you and hope that you'll come back and join us again uh, soon. It's absolutely my pleasure. I think we've got a lot of work to do and it's important that we continue to march on together. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's no secret that the news is horse pill hard to swallow. Thankfully, there's the Vituation Room podcast hosted by comedian and commentator Francesca Friorentini for a lighter take on the heavy stuff. Each week, The Vituation Room brings you progressive comedians, experts, and activists to break down the issues in a way that won't just leave you crying under a weighted blanket. Get The Vituation Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and streaming on YouTube and Twitch. That is it for me today, friends, on this Woke AF and with this week. I wish you all a restful and recharging and joy-centered weekend. I will be back here on Monday. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Get a behind-the-scenes look at Comedy Central's The Daily Show on Beyond the Scenes, an original podcast from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Every week, host Roy Wood Jr. goes deeper with the notable guests and experts from the Emmy Award-winning series. Together, they use comedy to tackle current topics from gentrification to gun laws and take a closer look at how and why these topics matter. Listen to Beyond the Scenes from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.